Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on The Real News. I'm Mark Steiner. It's great to have you all with us. And this is another edition of Not In Our Name, but it's, it's a very special part of this uh, conversation we always have. There was a report that was put out in Rutgers University Law School, Center for Security, Race, and Rights, called Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamic Phobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. came out in November and 23, and it really is, given what ha- we're facing today, the war in Gaza, that this report is really deeply meaningful. It was meaningful when it was written, but it's even more meaningful now in terms of what we face. Its authors join us today. Sahar Aziz is a distinguished professor and Chancellor's Social Justice Scholar at Rutgers Law School, uh, author of the book Racial Muslim, founding director of the Interdisciplinary Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights. And Mitchell Plitton joins us, the co-author of this. He is president of Rethinking Foreign Policy. Uh, previously, he was vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, director of the U.S. Office of Beth Salem, and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace, and has written numerous articles in many publications and appeared in lots of media as well. And folks, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it really is a pleasure to have you both. This is a very um, thorough and intense piece of work. Uh, let me just begin in a really simplistic way. And that is just to talk about what drove you to this piece and talk about the, the, the whole concept here being presumptively anti-Semitic and, and, and Islamophobic tropes, I mean, and how those two things tie together. And so hard, let me start with you, if I might, then go to Mitchell. Well, first, thanks so much for inviting us. And uh, this report was started over a year ago. We started the research and the writing process, not anticipating the travesty, the humanitarian crisis, and, and what many believe is a genocide happening in Gaza right now, uh, as we speak, by the Israeli military. And the impetus behind the project was that each time me and my colleagues who were Muslim or Arab, and even if they were actually Christian Arabs, everybody just assumed that they were Muslim, each time we wanted to engage in a debate on the merits related to Palestine, related to Israel, whether it was U.S. foreign policy on that issue or whether it was the actual history and politics and economics of that particular geopolitical issue, we were constantly being silenced by being called anti-Semitic. And that the it wasn't just conflating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which is problematic for, for anyone who criticizes Zionism, but it was simply criticizing the state of Israel that we were then accused of hating Jews. We were accused of wanting to kill Jews. We were accused of supporting genocide of Jews. We were accused of supporting Hamas or Hezbollah or any designated terrorist organization. And all of it was simply because we wanted to bring the perspectives, the voices, the experiences of the Palestinian people. And it made me realize that this was a strategy. It was a, a strategy for silencing, for censorship, for smearing. And even more problematically, it was is successful and effective because part of Islamophobia in the post 9-11 era, which I wrote an entire book about, right, the racial Muslim and racism quashes religious freedom, that the Islamophobic tropes that have been peddled in the last 20 years are not just that Muslims are presumed to be terrorists or supportive of terrorism, disloyal, misogynistic, violent, barbaric, despotic, But there was this other Islamophobic trope that was rearing its ugly head, and that was that Muslims were presumed to be anti-Semitic. 
And that then had all sorts of adverse effects, particularly on our ability to practice free speech, to engage in political activism. Um, and oftentimes it could lead to people losing their jobs, being stigmatized, being defamed. And um, so at that point, like any good scholar, I thought this is worth the research. There's a real practical problem that's harming millions of people in this country. And the solution for most academics when they face you know, something like this is they say, let's research it, let's investigate it, let's get to the bottom of it. And you did. <laughs> Mitchell, what do you want to add to that? Well, I mean, so Sahar came to me with this. And, and for me, I'm, I come at it a little bit of different direction. I come at it as, as a Jewish activist who's been working on Palestine for over two decades. And so there's 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 two ways that that this means that, that that this was particularly important to me. One is just from you know most of my work is focused on policy, whether it's it's you know international policy, the policy of international organizations, Israeli policy. Although mostly I focus on U.S. policy uh, and changing that, and um, that as, as Sahar just just pointed out, that is greatly impeded by this process of tying uh, all criticism of Israel to uh, presumptive anti-Semitism. It's most acute with, with Muslims and with Arabs, as, as Sahar points out and as we, we deal with in the report, but you know, they hit everybody with it. Um, if you if you support Palestine, you're you're considered anti-Semitic, by the way, even if you're Jewish. Um, and plenty of Jews uh, who support Palestine uh, are, are called, you know, they may call us self-hating Jews, or you know, these days they just go straight at and just say anti-Semites. <laughs> um they so this is a, a, a the fact is it's an effective tool for not not necessarily for convincing people that this is true, but for blocking policy change, for for blocking that debate and public discourse that can in you know over time affect policy. Uh it has been an effective tool. Then also as a Jew, um this uh this this strategy is I, I can't even describe how harmful it is in the long run to the Jewish people. Um, it is it is already, and we're seeing today, how doing this is fomenting anti-Semitism in a very conscious way. Uh, look at the the leading organization in this uh, in this propaganda war, um, one that uh, is perceived not to be a uh, you know part of this grand Islamophobic network that that we detail in our report, but rather is perceived to be liberal. And I'm talking now about the Anti-Defamation League. Um, the, you know, we talk about them in the report as well. This is an organization, though, that is perceived to be liberal, that is perceived to be fighting for civil rights and human rights for Jews and others. Um, and in fact, uh, leads, leads the fight to call all criticism of Israel anti-Semitic, and it's gotten to the point where they actually pal around now. Their, their president, Jonathan Greenblatt, uh, is, is palling around with known white nationalists, uh, and they support the actions of known white nationalists, be that Elise Stefanik in, 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 in Congress or Elon Musk, who's, who's spreading all kinds of crazy anti-Semitic theories all over Twitter. Um, and Greenblatt's just hanging with these guys and saying, hey, they're really cool. Um, the, the, the truth of the matter is, and history bears this out, Jews are safe when we have allies. Jews are safe when we work in solidarity with other 
with other groups who, um, you know, Jews are not terribly marginalized in this country at this point. Although, you know, yes, anti-Semitism is certainly growing and things could get to a very bad place. But for now, we're still not horribly uh, uh, marginalized. But there's a reason Jews have a history of standing with marginalized and oppressed groups, even if we're at one of the better times in our history where that's not so acute as it is at other times in our history. Uh, and the reason is Jew, you know, is not entire, you know, it can be altruistic. We, I'd like to think some of us are noble, good-hearted people. Um, <laughs> but but there's also a selfish reason, as you know, as there often is. They're, they're not selfish, but but a self-interested reason, as there often is, which is that our safety depends on fighting racism of all kinds. It depends on fighting patriarchy. It depend depends on fighting settler colonialism. The the you know the, the whole list of things that we talk about that that forge relationships between us and other communities. And one of the key uh, uh, results of this equation or, or this 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 uh, horrific trope that Muslims are, uh, unless proven otherwise, anti-Semitic, uh, is, is that it tries to split the Jewish and Muslim communities. Uh, and when we work together, it is amazing how much we can get done, as we've seen recently uh, in, the, in the protests against the, the, the genocide in Gaza, where Jewish and Muslim groups have come together to lead many of these protests that are making huge headlines. Uh, and I'm very proud of the work that we've done there. That's how. That's not just how we, we fight against this genocide. It's also how we keep Jews and Muslims safe. One of the things this has exposed, and, you talk, and, and your report kind of gets into it deeply, is that this conflict, I think, has made Islamophobia and hatred of Arabs and Muslims just explode in this country. We also live in, in, in a nation where, for lots of complex reasons, Israel is a place that is not to be criticized in all this at the same time. And that helps rise anti-Semitism, I think, inside this country. So I'm curious where you, th where you think we're headed with this. From all of the research you've done, where does this take us as a nation here in the United States and what happens there as well? in, in Israel-Palestine. Because I think that we're seeing, you, you, you detail all these Islamophobic attacks in this country, and you detail what happens in at the universities with people who try to take on Israel and protest against this war. So wh where do you think this leads us? Because I have to say one more thing here, because I really think that the war that is taking place now is the most dangerous I have seen in my lifetime between Israel and Palestine and in the Arab world. Um, so, yeah, where, where, where do you think we're headed with all this? So the, the, the tragedy or travesty in all of this, from my vantage point, is that you have a community, a minority community, that historically has been discriminated against on account of its religious identity, which has been racialized. And I spent months studying anti-Semitism for the book, The Racial Muslim, to understand you know, how has the racialization of religion worked in the past and how is that informing Islamophobia in the post 9-11 era? And I learned quite a bit and I really developed a deep understanding of the depth and the extent of anti-Semitism in the United States. And so after 9-11, I experienced personally and so did many of my colleagues in the civil rights space and the civil rights advocacy and combating Islamophobia space which we were very busy with a lot of work right after 9-11, 
we experience some very positive alliances with liberal Jewish Americans and Jewish American groups and found there was a lot in common between combating anti-Semitism and combating Islamophobia. Uh, and in fact, you know, many of the lawyers who trained me as a civil rights lawyer were themselves Jewish Americans who had a history of working with black communities, right, against anti-black racism. And so we had associated the Jewish American community, which as we know, votes predominantly dem democratic, right, in, in, in partisan elections, that they would be supportive of civil rights, that they were allies. And so this past few years, especially the more that Israel was assaulting Gaza, because there had been multiple, what they call cutting the grass in Gaza, where uh, each time you would have the rising death toll, which is nothing compared to the 30,000 plus Palestinians that have now been killed in the past over 100 days, and the 65,000 more that have been injured, but it kept going up. So that was creating awareness and that was creating activism. And what we were seeing, again, going back to why I wrote the report, was instead of uh, Jewish American groups, or I should say Zionist groups, uh, being in allegiance with us, they were attacking us. And they were starting to engage in the same talking points and, this, and peddling the same Islamophobic tropes that we saw in the white nationalist camp. And that was very baffling. And it's much, much more heightened now. And now, effectively, what from the Muslim American community vantage point, it's become clear to us that the allegiance to Zionism as a political ideology supersedes whatever uh, support for civil rights of minorities may exist among many Jewish American communities. Now, of course, Jewish Voice for Peace is different. If not now, then when is different. Um, rabbis for ceasefire. Obviously, there there are a number, though my understanding is they're relatively a small group within the larger Jewish American community. But so what we're seeing is the very group, the very minority group that has been a target of discrimination is now the perpetrator of discrimination against Muslims. And that's caused me to think about why that's happening, right? I think one reason is that for better or worse, Jews in America have reached the pinnacle of status, first-class citizenship, which is they've become raced as socially white, which they were not, right, before World War II and arguably even uh, be, you know, after World War II in the first few decades. So what you're seeing is this exercise of white privilege and to quash and to censor and to punch down on Muslim Americans who as a collective are much less influential, much less economically successful, much less politically empowered, primarily because most of them immigrated to the US after 1965, right, due to anti-Asian and, and, and exclusionary immigration laws. So these, this is not a community, these are not communities that are at the same, it's not a fair fight, especially if you're talking about in the halls of Congress or universities, but why is it a fight in the first place? Right. Why? And this is where we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I think what's really important for every Jewish American to understand, whether they're you know, hardcore right wing Zionists politically or whether just cultural Zionists or whether they're anti Zionists, is that all of the hate that they are fueling against Muslims right now is creating an environment and a society that in a switch can be flipped on other minorities. And this is where I think Mitchell's point is so important is 
when you weaponize anti-Semitism to oppress another minority group, first, it makes people not believe you that it's anti-Semitism because you're defining political dissent as racism, and that's not the same thing, as opposed to individualized hateful acts and, and, and crimes against a person because of their identity. And number two, you're creating an environment, you're contributing to a society that is intolerant, that is repressive, that is racist. And once that environment exists, who's to say it won't be turned? And that's the very reason why Muslims and Jews were allying against the Muslim ban, because Jews, Jews understand the Holocaust didn't happen in a year. Nazism didn't rise in five years. It takes time. So I guess my message is to those who are Zionists and those who are committed to civil rights and who you know, vote Democrat is be careful what you wish for, because you are digging a grave figuratively for all minorities when you so aggressively uh, deny Muslims and Arab Americans their rights to free speech, political dissent, and to just to be equal participants in a really important foreign policy issue. Go ahead, we're going to say something I can see. Yeah, I mean, um, so I, I just, you know, Sahar, I think, did a great job talking about what this is domestically. Um, and, and if we look at the region and also on the international stage, this plays out, the, you know, this 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 um, um, cynical use of anti-Semitism and the, uh, you know, the, the Islamophobic tropes play out in the same way. We just saw, really interesting, um, just this morning, there are reports coming out of Janine on the West Bank, that uh, Israeli soldiers dressed as Palestinian civilians and, and you know, uh, well, storm, basically stormed a hospital uh, in order to kill three people, uh, which they did, uh, who were there seeking medical treatment for wounds they had. They, these were certainly Palestinian militants, um, and they were there seeking medical treatment for wounds that had been inflicted in previous Israeli raids. Israel knew they were in the hospital, so they did this, which is exactly, right, dressed up as civilians, hiding among the civilian population, exactly what they have accused Hamas of doing to justify uh, their destruction of civilian infrastructure in Gaza. Um, yet there is no outcry about this. There is no uh, sense that somehow Israel should be made to 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 answer, uh, face some consequences for these actions. Um, it it plays out in also what we've seen just uh, in the last few days regarding uh, the UN Relief Works Agency (UNRWA), um, where apparently, according to in his, uh, a supposed Israeli dossier, and let's keep in mind that it was only two years ago that a similar Israeli dossier was so was deemed so absurd that even the, the Biden administration didn't believe it when it was used to accuse six Palestinian organizations of being aligned with terrorist groups. So just two years ago. Right. But somehow this one. Uh, whose evidence is again being kept secret, not being made public, uh, is is being used as the basis to cut off funds uh, to UNRWA by the United States and 13 other countries, um, basically crippling uh, UNRWA's ability to function at all. It will not. It, but it, next month, it will. It will. By the end of February, it will cease to function if that funding is not restored. That is. Uh, I mean, to do that to a population that is already starving already 
dying of exposure to the elements because they have no homes, already dying of curable diseases. Uh, I mean, suffering in every way you can imagine. And to cut off the, you know, UNRWA doesn't only supply the aid themselves. They also have the infrastructure through which other charitable organizations provide aid in Gaza. So this is an enormous blow. How does that happen based on um, a, 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 an unsubstantiated dossier, which, by the way, even the United States said they hadn't yet proved, uh, uh, been able to verify the contents of this dossier when they uh, suspended the funding. They actually said those words. Um, how does that happen? How do 13 other countries do the same thing? How can that be? Um, it, it can happen um, because we have completely dehumanized Palestinians. We have completely made them uh, into villains. And I'm not talking about Hamas here. Very, frankly, very little of the uh, operation that has taken place in Gaza since October 7th has, had, has been connected in any way to Hamas. The overwhelming majority of it has been directed at the civilian population of Gaza, um, where we have you know, Israel, for example, uh, uh, tells people, okay, you know, flee to Khan Yunus. And then Khan Yunus comes under attack. Um, they tell you free, go to this spot, and then that very spot is is bombed. Um, they they tell you take this road to get south, and that very road is bombed. Um, that that's not a mistake. Israel knows what it's doing. Um, it, it, it that level of incompetence is just impossible to 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 exist in any army, let alone one that's considered one of the great ones in the world. So. Um, you know where you know when we ask where are we going we have dehumanized palestinians to such an extent that their lives have no value and it isn't only in the united states the united states leads this process but it you know clearly there are other countries uh including japan and including a whole host of european countries obviously the uk germany um uh, that that treat this all the same way so um and and just really quickly to bring it back here I think we're we are seeing that even though these tropes are pervasive and even though they are powerful, people, regular people, people who are not scholars like Sahar, uh, people who have not done this for twenty years like I have, still see through it. And there's that, and that's the reason so many people, so many Democrats, um, are upset with Biden for his policy. So this is an overwhelmingly unpopular, his policy is overwhelmingly unpopular among Democrats. Uh, there is a movement to not vote for him. That may not be the majority of Democrats' position that they will not vote for him because of this, but there are, there are the, the, the polls show one after another between 60 and 80% of Democrats uh, in all of these polls are saying they disagree with Biden's policy and they want a ceasefire. Yet Biden just ignores them. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that happen? And I think that he needs to be very careful about the states where there's a large Arab or Muslim community yeah. that where it's purple, like in Michigan. Michigan, uh, yeah. Because right now, the, the position, the majority position seems to be that they will not vote for Biden. They may not necessarily vote for the Republican candidate, but they won't vote for Biden because of this dehumanization and aiding and abetting genocide that that Biden's foreign policy effectively does. And I want to just add to, to Mitchell's comments that, you know, when when we talk about genocide, you know, the hardest part legally to prove is intent and the intent to eliminate in part or in whole uh, a group of people on account of their identity. 
In this case, intent is quite easy to prove. South Africa was able to show hundreds of examples of politicians, elected officials, government appointees, members of the public, the journalists, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of wanting to kill and remove Palestinians forcibly from uh, Gaza in particular, some people won't even say the word Palestinian because they don't believe those people exist. But the the part, the genocide, the genocidal component that I think is the clearest evidence is not just the indiscriminate bombing, which they'll argue is, well, that's just collateral damage following the U.S. model in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's the intentional starvation of 2.3 million civilians. It's the intentional denial of clean water and fuel that's needed to clean the water to 2.3 million civilians, and the intentional, for example, cutting of uh, funds to UNRWA which is the primary distributor of humanitarian aid. And, and of course, that then creates disease and that creates death. So that component, there is no justification in the laws of war or international humanitarian law. There, there is absolutely no justification. There's no wiggle room as to why the state of Israel, with the support of the U.S. and, and many countries in Europe, is intentionally starving 2.3 million civilians for now over 105 days. That's the genocidal component. There's no other objective than to kill them, and which is to eliminate them. So uh, tying this all back to what you, what you all wrote, and by the way, we'll be linking to this on our website so people can read the report in depth. It's, it's well worth the read. Growth of Islamophobia across the globe, and here especially, and I would say also a rise in anti-Semitism is happening at the same time, but you have this rise of the right that loves what Israel is doing because they have their own mythologies about what that means for the future of humanity. It seems to me that, that, that what's happening there now, given all you've written about in terms of Islamophobia and um, the, the depth of that in, among obviously non-Islamic populations of the planet and, and, and people on the globe, we really seem to me to be at a very dangerous point. You know, I think about that. I think about that in terms of... Uh, my kids who are very active in, in these movements as well. You know, they're out in the streets uh, demonstrating um, to, to, to and, and with Jewish Voices for Peace and other groups like that. It seems that we are a place where there's between the rise of the right, this war that in between Gaza and between Palestinians and Israelis and the U.S. actually pushing Israel, not trying to stop Israel. We're, we're, this could be a turning point. Uh, in, in ways that we have not seen before. And I want to have what you've just written and, and researched fits into that and what that says to all of that. Yeah, I mean, I would, first of all, I, I would suggest actually, you know, that um, Israel itself is part of that, you know, when we talk about the, the, far, the rise of the far right, um, that Israel is not at all separate from that. Uh, Netanyahu is very, very much a part of that movement. He is very much in there with the Donald Trumps, with the Viktor Orbans, with Vladimir Putin's, um, all of these people who represent that far right ideology. Um, and and even though many of those people hate Jews, you know, again, it comes back to you know what did the even even the nazis you go back to uh before the final solution was implemented nazis would have been more than happy to let all the jews in europe leave 
the problem was there was nowhere, no one else would take them in. Everybody shut their doors, including the United States, uh, which eventually led to the final solution. But the Nazis just wanted Jews. They they wanted this. is And this is incidentally genocide. They wanted Jews out of Europe. They wanted there to be no more Jews in Europe. That was their that was their goal. If Jews had gone to some other place that that would have that would, you know, they they would have allowed that uh, from from the beginning. And Netanyahu wants and no more have this, Palestinians in Gaza. Right. And so it's the same. Again, it's the same idea. I mean, Israel, it, what we're seeing now, what is Israel trying to do? Is Israel trying to kill all the people in Gaza? Possibly. But but that's not necessarily the, the, the end game. They would be just fine if all the Palestinians left Gaza. You know, really what this has been, they've been squeezing Gaza, Gazans farther and farther south. And the, the plan, which was put forth by a government ministry when this war started, was to squeeze them to into the south so that they'd have no choice but to basically go into the Sinai and, and set up their their new you know, their new home uh, in, in Egypt. That was the idea. So, you know, the, the, this Israel is not, even though you would think again, that, that Jews would not be part of this, you know, uh, this sort of white nationalist concept, the settlers ideology and, and the general uh, ideology of the Israeli right is, is indistinguishable from white nationalist ideology. So there is that danger. It is very real. Um, how, you know, how, how dangerous, uh, is it? I think it's extremely dangerous. And I think the fact that so few people are connecting Israel with the far right, uh, is part of that danger. And the, uh, so how do we push back against that dynamic? Well, one of the ways is to take a look at, you know, we can do that right here. Um, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, just put out a report that showed that Islamophobic attacks or attacks on Muslims since October 7th have gone up by almost three times, um, which is an astounding number, especially when you consider that Muslims are, are much less apt to report attacks than, uh, than, for example, Jews are. They don't feel as safe reporting attacks. Uh, so the, the underreporting, and they may be underreporting about anti-Semitism as well, but the underreporting is going to be even greater when it comes to the Muslim community. Um, and my response to that was, look, there's, it, it's three times as many uh, attacks on Muslims as before October 7th. Don't hold your breath waiting for the congressional hearings about this. Um, you know, that that we're not going to see that happen. In fact, the report came out. Um, as far as I know, it's hardly made any news anywhere. So um, that is the kind of thing that we, you know, that we need to address. We need we also need to understand and acknowledge um, and I, I, I hate to bring this back to electoral politics, but it's important because, in my view, uh, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi, who is now basically saying anyone calling for a ceasefire in 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 Gaza is a Russian agent, um, uh, or or when the the protesters came to her house, she said they were Chinese agents. Now, so it kind of <laughs> I'm not sure where she's. Uh, but uh, the fact that she is actually calling on she's actually called on the FBI to investigate groups that are pro, that are demonstrating for ceasefire when when Democrats are doing this. OK, and people are responding to protests by chanting four more years. That brings back the right wing. That is exactly what empowers Donald Trump to win in November 2024. It is not people like myself and Sahar who are calling out the genocide. It's the fact that the genocide is being committed and the protests aren't even being tolerated. 
That is what what fuels the radical right. That is what fuels the the grievance culture and brings Donald Trump. To, so we what we need to understand is this concept that oh no we must you know we must uh, 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 vote for Joe Biden again no matter what he does is in fact playing right into Trump's hands. What we need to do is reform and demand more of Democrats. That we're not going to get any more out of Republicans, right? So we need to demand more out of Democrats who who and and tell them no, it's not okay for you to participate in genocide and expect to get reelected. You can't do that. It has to. So we have to be calling for Biden to step aside. We have to be calling for alternatives who will support a ceasefire in Gaza as most Democrats want. And put that up against the Republicans, because if we don't do that, we're going to get the far right. That's what happens. It's what happened in 2016. It's going to happen again. Only this time it's going to be because of these nonsensical allegations of of uh, either being Muslim or supporting Muslims and Arabs being a, a, a sign of anti-Semitism. Zahar, please leap in. I wanted to, I wanted to bring us also back to the report in terms of our recommendations. Yes, that's where I was going to go next. So take which kind of yes. show, which Mitchell, I think, set it up well is, you know, we had three primary policy recommendations because this is ultimately a policy report that is intended to inform policymakers, whether they're in elected officials in, in Congress or state legislators or in um, executive branches, in the executive branch. But the first is to include the, pers the perspectives of Palestinians in U.S. foreign policy development. The second is preserve academic freedom and free speech at American universities. And the third is to hold Israel accountable for violations of Palestinian human rights. So I want to focus, I mean, we've talked about the third, but the first two are essential for um, preserving American fundamental principles of free speech, political dissent, political freedoms, and for ensuring that our foreign policy does not repeat the same mistakes we made in Vietnam, the same mistakes we made in Afghanistan, the same mistakes we made in Iraq, which costs American lives, and it costs us, all of us, billions of dollars. So one of the reasons we believe that U.S. foreign policy is so uh, flawed, to put it mildly. But one, there are many reasons, but one reason is there is no uh, differences or diversity of perspectives in the State Department, in the White House, in the National Security Council, in the Department of Defense, insofar as most of the narratives, most of the perspectives, the policies, the reasoning are clearly, they're not even, you know, uh, uh, veiled but clearly Zionist. And that means you're taking a side. And if you're going to take a side, at least right now, that side is the side of genocide at worst or ethnic cleansing and forced displacement and collective punishment right, at best. And that is not how you develop good foreign policy. Ultimately, it boomerangs back and costs American lives and, um, and, and, and treasure. So I think that we need to take seriously the, the need for diversity. It's not simply virtue signaling. It's not simply a matter of principle, but there's actually a very important utilitarian component to it. Um, and then the academic freedom issue is one that I certainly am most concerned about as, a, as an academic. I have, I have actually been reading up on McCarthyism and refreshing my historical knowledge because what I'm seeing at university campuses is stuff I'm used to reading about that happened generations past. 
And I also happen to be a scholar of authoritarianism in the Middle East. I've written quite a bit about authoritarianism in Egypt, for example, and why the Arab Spring failed. And I just keep seeing these, these actions by the state and by people who have accepted these authoritarian practices that are clearly authoritarianism. Maybe they're authoritarian light or precursors to full force authoritarianism. But I mean, I saw it even in, in the behavior and rhetoric of Trump. And what Americans don't understand is because they have the privilege and the luxury of not having to, at least this generation, of not having to experience authoritarianism in full force, they take for granted their democracy. They, they subscribe to this eugenic, like scientific racist notion that Americans are somehow genetically superior, that they will always have a democracy, that they will never be at risk of being in an authoritarian state, which is false, right? It's about our principles, our institutions, our values, our norms. Every generation has to affirmatively protect those norms and those policies, those practices, and those laws. Otherwise, it could slip away, as we saw under Trump. So what we're seeing with universities where Students for Justice in Palestine are being shut down or suspended, where the Anti-Defamation League of all organizations, again, I was flabbergasted, and so was every law professor across the country, I think, where the ADL sends a letter to every law dean or every university president demanding that they investigate the Students for Justice in Palestine, alleging that they support Hamas and that they're terrorist groups. I mean, that's just, you might as well just change the word communist. Right? It is it's just McCarthyism. It's a repeat of it. And and this is the organization that's supposed to protect civil rights of religious minorities. Uh, similarly, you have law firms that are that wrote letters to all the law deans and said, you need to surveil and police your students, your law students, because we're not going to hire anyone who's anti-Semitic as defined by critical of Israel, as defined by def demanding a ceasefire, as defined by humanizing Palestinians. So it's just, and, and there's professors that are under attack, myself included. I've been called anti-Semitic, anti-American, extremist, radical. And I think, okay, great. I'm going to cite that in my next book. But it's you, it's just unbelievable. And I keep thinking, is this the United States of America? Or am I have I somehow just been transported to this foreign country that is a dictatorship and all of the people are brainwashed into this propaganda? So I, I do think that we have to be very, very alert and cognizant of these dynamics. And even if someone is a, what we'll call a soft Zionist or a liberal Zionist, where they're they're critical of Netanyahu, they're critical of, of the current government, they have got to appreciate that their country is going to, the, the country that they're supporting or the type of society they're supporting in the name of protecting uh, Zionism, it will boomerang back. It is just a matter of time. So I hope that we can all kind of take a principled position on the domestic front and, and think about what's in the interest of this country and preserving kind of what we value in this country and what many of us, including my parents, immigrated to this country for, right? People do not come from other countries to come here and get repressed and get discriminated against and get harassed, intimidated, and, and victims of hate crimes, which I'll just point out just shortly before I, I close, is that, you know, three... Palestinian college students were shot. They were victims of an attempted murder because they were Palestinians. One six-year-old Palestinian child in Chicago was stabbed 26 times and killed. Both of, you know, all four of these victims were by white perpetrators of white men who were subscribing to the Zionist ideology that's very racist. 
Imagine if that had happened to Jews. What would be the response of Congress? What would be the response of university presidents? What would be the response of of employers and, and civil rights groups? And yet there was not a peep. And that is exhibit A of the dehumanization of Palestinian lives in the United States. Let me just start by thanking both of you and this report. Um, it, it, I'm, I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna put this online. The report is, is you, you really gotta dive into this. Presumptively anti-Semitic Islamic tropes, Islamophobic tropes in the Palestine-Israel discourse. Uh, written by my two guests, if you just heard, Sahar Aziz and Mitchell Plitnik, and I already know who I'm sending this report to. Numbers of people are going to get this report from me. Uh, <laughs> some of them sit in Congress, and I'll make sure they get get it gets sent to their desks. Um, That's who needs it. And I, I, I deeply appreciate the work you've done uh, and the intellect and passion you brought to all of this and to our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today. And once again, thanks to our guests, Sahar Aziz and Mitchell Pitnick. And we'll link to their report, Presumptively Anti-Semitic, on our site. And let me give you their site right now. It's csrr.rutgers.edu forward slash issues forward slash presumptively dash anti-Semitic. And this edition of the Mark Steiner Show seemed to draw together much of our work. Not in our name, where we're just saying no to the Israeli government's repressive occupation of war and the rise of the right. And in Israel, you can see the dangers of neo-fascist rule and what the world must fight. That all came together, I think, in today's conversation. Once again, thank you all for joining us. And thanks to Cameron Grandino for running this show and editing this program. And the tireless Kayla Rivara for making it all work behind the scenes. And everyone here through the news for making this show possible. We'll link to the stories that Sahar Aziz and Mr. Bittman have written. More here on our site at The Real News Network. And please let me know what you think about what you heard today, what you'd like us to cover. Just write to me at mss at therealnews.com and I'll write you right back. And stay tuned for more conversations and stories about Palestine and Israel right here on The Real News and The Mark Steiner Show. So for the crew here at The Real News, I'm Mark Steiner. Stay involved, keep listening, and take care. Take care.